Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's continue our series through the life and ministry, the prophetic role of Elijah and Elisha. This morning, we're going to finish up 1 Kings chapter 22, begin 2 Kings chapter 1. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. 1 Kings 22, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother Jezebel and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshiped him and provoked the Lord the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. 2 Kings 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah, he fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, to Ahaziah, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, well, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They'd answered him, well, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And Ahaziah said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. No doubt, many of you remember exactly where you were on Thursday when you learned of a great passing, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. We were in a staff meeting, a very good staff meeting. Good discussion was going on until I saw our women's ministry coordinator distracted with her phone receiving text messages, which I thought was a little rude and inappropriate. And then I found that it was my wife, Stephanie, that was texting her. <laughs> Turns out just after the royals, Stephanie Ray was the next in line to know about the passing of the beloved queen. The BBC has been on in our house ever since that moment. The response to her passing, the queen's passing, I think you would agree, it has been staggering in terms of its scope, in terms of the number of people and in the genuine mourning over her loss. It's, it's remarkable. Why do you think it was and is 
that she was so universally respected, loved, and well-regarded? If you were to answer that question, why do you think she occupied this unique and elevated place in the hearts and minds of the British people? Well, I think it was because of more than anything else, she viewed her role to be that of a what? It was emphasized and reiterated again and again and again and again. She viewed her life to be one of service, sacrificial service, to be that of a servant. In fact, when she was just 21 years old and first in line for the throne, she said, you're probably familiar with this quote, she said, I declare before you, before the entire kingdom, I declare before you that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service, to the service of her people. And she lived that to the end. Many think that she knew the Lord Jesus in a saving way. We pray that she did. And because of this life of service, many regard her, I think many regard her as the greatest monarch in British history, a, green, a queen who finished well. Sadly, that same thing cannot be said of the Jewish monarch listed in our passage today. In fact, as Jewish monarchs go, on a very bad list of monarchs in terms of the northern kingdom, they were, they were virtually all bad. Ahaziah would be ranked near the bottom of the list of the worst kings of Israel. And that's pretty impressive in a bad way. That's, that's saying something, how horrible a king Ahaziah, king of Israel, king of the northern kingdom, was. In fact, our passage describes his reign and his character, who he was very well. 1 Kings 22, verses 51 through 53, this gives the context for what follows. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. That's, that's pitiful. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the way of his father, and typically the mother's not mentioned, but Jezebel was such a disaster. He walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to, to sin. Ahaziah, he served Baal, and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Had there been tweeting on the day of his death, many of them probably would have had to have been censored. I mean, he was a terrible king on every level. In fact, he was the kind of king that set the stage for the Syrians to invade in about 100 years. It was kings like this that caused the demise and destruction of the northern kingdom. Men like Ahaziah. Okay, I want you to note right at the get-go what the emphasis of our passage is today. The emphasis of our passage today is on the utter reliability and the trustworthiness of the Word of God. The clear emphasis in the passage, it starts it right at the beginning. There's an emphasis on the reliability and the trustworthiness of God's Word. Look with me at 2 Kings 1. 
And there seems to be a non sequitur between verse 1 and verse 2 of 2 Kings chapter 1. The author mentions about the rebellion of Moab, and you would expect maybe to learn more about that. He totally changes subject and then focuses in on Ahaziah's fall. How do those two things go together? Why introduce the rebellion of Moab only to change the subject and go into the rebellion or go into the fall of Ahaziah? What do those things have in common? Do you know? Those things have in common that they are the fulfillment of God's prophetic word against Ahab. Dave preached a wonderful sermon last week about the injustice and the absolute sinfulness of Ahab and Jezebel. Do you remember what they did? You got to be on your toes. Ahab and Jezebel stole Naboth's vineyard and had him executed. And then God enters in through Elijah and issues a judgment, a prophecy of judgment against Ahab. It causes Ahab to repent, which is amazing. And then the Lord said this, because Ahab has humbled himself, Yahweh says, I will not bring this disaster in his day. But do you remember what was said? But I will bring disaster on Ahab's house in the days of his son. What happens the instant that Ahab dies? Look with me at verse um, 1 of our passage, 2 Kings 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. It's like there was a chain reaction. The nanosecond Ahab dies, the dissolution of his son's house starts. Moab rebels. Moab was a vassal state. Moab rebels. And then his son suffers a catastrophic injury. Look with me at verse 2. All of this is being fulfilled according to God's word. Now Ahaziah, he fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. Samaria was the king of the northern kingdom. We have found that palace. It was an ivory palace, one of the greatest ivory palaces in the ancient world, a large dwelling place. What probably happened... The kings would luxuriate on the second floor. It was cooler on the second floor. There was probably multiple places on the second floor. Ahaziah probably took a shortcut from one part of the second floor of the palace to another side. He probably walked across lattice work that he had done many times in the past. Well, this day, the lattice work did not hold his weight, and he fell through. It could have been... 15, 20 feet that he fell to the floor and suffered a catastrophic injury. We don't know if he was paralyzed. We don't know if there was internal bleeding. We don't know if there was a massive concussion. It may have been all of the above. He was injured to the degree that he thought he was going to die. And so when he found himself in this place, he sends his messengers to go pray to the God that he had confidence in. Now, this is very ironic. Here we have the king in Israel suffering a catastrophic injury, and he sends messengers to the God of Israel's ancient foe, the Philistines of all people. He sends messengers to pray to Beelzebub, the God of the Philistines. Do you know what that word literally means, Beelzebub? It literally means the Lord of the flies, okay? So when... Um, 
William Golding in 1954 wrote his book, Lord of the Flies, and the boys and their character and their lives descend into darkness, and they, 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 they make this boar's head like a kind of God. It's nicknamed the Lord of the Flies. He did that. Beelzebub embodied total darkness. That's who Ahaziah was reaching out to for help in his time of need. Beelzebub was the medicinal deity for the Philistines. Think of him as like a therapeutic deity. The Philistines were ahead of their time. They associated flies with disease. Beelzebub's role in Ekron and Philistia was to drive the flies away and bring healing to the people. By this time in history, Beelzebub was viewed as the god of healing for the Philistines. That's who Ahaziah reaches out to during his time of great distress, which would be shocking unless you knew that Ahaziah's parents were Ahab and Jezebel. And so he gets these couriers, these, 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 um, these servants of his, and he sends them off, and they go south to Ekron to find out what's going to happen. Yahweh God Almighty, okay, he gives the answer to Ahaziah, not Beelzebub. Look with me at verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, again, many scholars believe the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Jesus. Here you have the word of God delivering the word of God to Elijah. Verse 3, the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up, meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, intercept them, stop them, and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you go are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. So Elijah intercepts the couriers of Ahaziah and gives them a message to carry back. Of course, there is a God in Israel. You did not look to him, and now consequences are going to come. You shall surely die. Now, in the Hebrew, that's a double verb. In the text, it almost says, you're going to die, die, or dying, you will die. Like, this is over. You're finished. Your demise is coming soon. And so this is it for Ahaziah. It's over. Or is it over? Oftentimes, in the context of these divine judgments, okay, there is an implied contingency. Chris talked about this for a few weeks ago. There's often implied contingency in these judgments from God. What is the implied contingency? What is the judgment hoping to elicit? Humility? contrition, um, repentance for the person, the individual to come to a sense of what they've done and turn to God for salvation. I think that's what's happening here. This is an opportunity for Ahaziah to repent, to be broken, to come to the Lord. Oftentimes those things are very effective. They're effective in my house. Um, my precious daughter, Virginia, light of our life. Virginia's almost perfect. Okay, but no one's perfect, as we know. And um, sometimes in the morning, she's not excited to go to school, okay? You never know what's going to happen when you walk into her room in the morning and we're getting ready for the day. She could be excited to go to school, 
or she could say, I'm not going to school, okay? You've got to be very careful from that moment on in terms of how you negotiate, okay? Because it could be an hour delay until you, you know. But Virginia can be responsive to certain threats or whatnot. So like a couple weeks ago, there was a delay. Didn't want to get up. And I said, that is no problem. We're just going to forego dessert tonight, and it'll be a great day. You've never seen a human being get up so fast, get on those clothes, get ready to go. Virginia's heart is very responsive, I'm happy to say, if only the same was true for Ahaziah. Amazingly, after hearing this prophetic word of judgment and doom, what does Ahaziah do? He doubles down. He doubles down and he wants to silence Elijah. He wants to kill Elijah. Look at verse 5. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? They said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go to the king who sent you and say to him, and the thought bubble over Ahaziah's head is like Elijah, like he knows what's going on. There came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire, to pray, to seek help from Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he? By the way, what was he wearing? What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, well, he wore a garment of hair. That was interesting. With a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, okay, Elijah the Tishbite. Like his parents, he was very familiar with Elijah's ministry. Go to panel five as we end the story. One would think you know, that, that he, he is, he's broken and contrite and, and, you know, changing his heart and disposition for the Lord, but sadly that is not the case. Verse 9, then the king, 2 Kings 1, verse 9, then the king sent to him or sent after him a captain of 50 men with his 50. Now, the text can be confusing, so there's going to be three groups of 50 men each plus their captain. And they talk about all these, his men with his 50 and his 50, but it's, it's a captain and 50 men. There's going to be three groups um, of those folks. Then, he, then the king sent to him or came after him with a captain of 50 men with his 50. He, the captain, went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O oh, man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered, the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. The writer keeps emphasizing the captain and his 50 because that's a lot of men to come after one person, okay? The text reads, then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Now at this point, you would think this would cause Ahaziah to reevaluate Maybe pause, think, maybe Beelzebub isn't as powerful as we think. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe there's something to this Yahweh person. You would think that. I mean, you would think people wouldn't underestimate App State anymore, but sometimes they do. 
I'm so sorry. It's in the notes. I couldn't resist. I'm so sorry. Please don't file charges against me at Presbytery. I, I... Anyway, back to the text. Brief break. Back to the text. You would think this would have gotten Ahaziah's attention. It didn't. Verse 11. Again, the king sent to him, sent after Elijah, another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered, and he said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. The Hebrew reads, thus saith the king. Does that language remind you of something? Thus saith the king. Typically that prefaces, thus saith the Lord. The king is speaking as if he has the authority of God Almighty. Answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, in other words, if I'm a true prophet, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Kind of reminds me of like Pickett's Charge, day three of Gettysburg battle, and Lee. Like just, I mean, it's, it's almost unthinkable what he commanded Pickett and other men to do to send 13 or 14,000 Confederate soldiers over a mile of open ground with 1,200 Federal cannon trained on them. For 20 minutes, the Confederate soldiers walked in formation a mile across through the field. They couldn't run. It was almost 90 degrees, 3 p.m., incredibly humid. There's no way they could have run that far. They walk in formation almost a mile. Then they had to go over two five-foot fences that they couldn't tear down, up and over one, up and over the next. Over half of the men were immediately killed. Can you imagine? There was a group of men behind them being the ones to follow them and see what was happening to the people and the kinds of death they were dying, I won't describe. What do you think the third captain of the 50, like if he had like a closed circuit TV back in the barracks, okay, and he's watching what happens with these two groups of 50 and sees them exploded, and then like the phone rings and he gets the order, okay, you're going in. What do you think he was thinking at this point? Like, um, I think I need to go on vacation. Like, ah, uh, I don't want to do this. Can you imagine? Verse 11. Again, the king sent him another captain of 50 with his 50 and answered him, O man of God, this is the king's order come down. But Elijah answered, if I'm a man of God, let the fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. This is a wise man. The captain came and he fell on his knees before Elijah. And he entreated him, which means he was praying to him. Oh, man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Oh, Elijah, please do not destroy my men and me. Verse 14, behold, I saw fire came down from heaven 
and consume the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Show us grace and mercy, Elijah. Of course, what happens? Then the angel of the Lord, perhaps a pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, said to Elijah, like, stay your hand. Go down with him. Do not be afraid. So he arose and went down with him to the king. And Elijah said to the king, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Notice what happens next immediately. So what? So he died according to the word of Yahweh that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? What is the point? The word of God comes to pass. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. It comes to pass always, 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 always down to the word and letter. The word of God is true. This was written to the exiles who were coming back home and they needed to know and be reminded that the word of God is trustworthy. The word of God always comes to pass. Always. The point is Yahweh is God. There is no other, and it is only to him that we should go in whatever situation we find ourselves. We live in, a, in an age where like, the medical advances are mind-boggling. They are incredible. Members this morning are the beneficiaries of God's grace through medicine. We praise him for it, but our ultimate trust is not in medicine, is not in medical advances. We live in the most prosperous country in the history of the world. If people 100 years ago could see everyone's bank account today, they would be amazed. We live today better than any king in the history of the world almost, if you go back a century. And yet we are not to trust in our money in our background, our pedigree, our IQ. Don't kid yourself. At the end of the day, there's one person in whom we should place our trust, the word of God in Christ Jesus. That is the message of this text for us. Don't trust in other things. We are thankful for other things. We praise God for all these wonderful things. At the end of the day, we'll all be like Ahaziah, We'll all be on our deathbed of sorts, and there's only one safe place, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has been a stumbling block for many from the moment he announced his public ministry. But many also regard him as life itself. Who is Jesus of Nazareth to you? Is he the Son of God the savior of the world, is he the word of God or was he just a person? Everyone has to answer that question. Elijah provided a demonstration of God's power through fire. It vindicated God's word. The resurrection of Jesus Christ does the same to us. I'll just end with this. You have every reason to believe 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Savior of sinners, the very Word of God. Um, my favorite skeptic, Bart Ehrman, wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity, where he acknowledges how mind-blowingly amazing it was that Christianity triumphed like it did. That what started with a few dozen adherents in 30 AD, Christians made up 10% of the Roman Empire by 300 AD. Went from just a few adherents to 10% of the empire that tried to exterminate it by 300 AD. Now, in the book, Mark tries to figure out how that was the case. Since there is no God in his mind, how is that the case? He, he, he thinks it was largely because of the conversion of the Apostle Paul and the unique circumstances that, that Paul was able to orchestrate and do that, that allowed for the growth of the early church. But what he doesn't address, what's amazing is how much the early church grew in spite of Paul. Like the first 30 years after the crucifixion, before the first missionary journey, Christianity was proliferating in the hottest beds of persecution. And like Chris said, what were they asking of people? They were asking of people to give their lives and suffer the worst forms of persecution to trust in a crucified Jew. Can you imagine? That's your message. What did Jews think about Messiah? They thought Messiah was going to come in and destroy the Romans. What did Jesus' public crucifixion do in the minds of most Jews? I mean, it took Jesus out of the running. No way he could be the Messiah. That's the message they preached. Christianity exploded. I can't tell you how powerful an apologetic the growth of the early church in the first 30 years by the power of the Holy Spirit when the message was a crucified Messiah. People were giving their lives trusting him. The whole world was changed. You have every reason to believe, every reason to trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah of God. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of the third captain that we read about in this text. That third captain who humbled himself who repented, who literally bowed the knee before the God of Israel and in response to his word. Indeed, salvation came that day to the captain of the third 50. And salvation has come to us today through the person and work of the word of God in Christ Jesus. In Ahaziah's day, there were so many gods who claimed to be responsible for this and that. There were so many options that people had to choose to worship. We thank you for this text, which reminds us there's only one God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, God Almighty. Father, we pray that we would follow the example of that third captain. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would see the hope that we have, the mercy that is offered through Christ Jesus. Father, as we live 
work and play as we live as the beneficiaries of life in the 21st century with, with our wealth and our medicine and our, and our hospitals and our jobs and our colleges and, and our clothes and cars. And we're so blessed beyond imagination. Father, help us. Help us to distill our trust down solely to the person and work, the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his matchless name we pray, amen and amen.